All right. While everybody's found their se- fi- finding their seats, just a report. Camperete is going well. Everybody made it there fine. They were a little delayed going up because they had too many potty breaks. Rule number one, I have learned as a camp director, camp counselor, bus driver, and tour leader is that a group only moves as fast as the smallest bladder. That's the first thing I tell anybody who wants to lead groups. You got to, that controls the speed of the whole thing. So they're doing well, and all the reports I've gotten have been good. And also, one good news that came out of this is uh, uh, Abby, what's her last name, Mejia? Meha? Uh, Leha. Leha. Abby got uh, awarded a. Uh, uh, scholarship, I guess, to go to Israel for two or three months and work with a group over there in teaching English as a second language. That's just such a great thing. I'm just uh, proud that she's able to do that. So that's really good. Also, men's prayer breakfast is this Saturday morning at 730. And uh, if you can bring a son or grandson, then Vacation Bible School starts in a little less than two weeks. We still need some help. You can see that they've decorated not in here but back in the hallway, things uh, along there. And also there's more. Is, is all the information up there or it's a complete enough? We have gotten the prices and the dates and everything for all the Israel trips for Israel, Egypt. I mean Israel, Greece, Israel and Greece. All that information is up on the Dean Bible website now. Um, there were just a lot of things that kept changing, airlines, airfares, so uh, dates, things like that. So we finally got all that information up there so you can go there and look at it. We'll be getting more as time progresses. Same thing with the, with the Egypt trip, so be in prayer uh, for all of those things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. It gives us the opportunity to slow down, relax, focus, and to... Admit or acknowledge our sins to God if necessary so that we can be in right relationship with him, continue a walk by the Spirit, enjoying our fellowship with God, and growing to spiritual maturity. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God who rules over his creation and that we do not know all about your plan and purposes. And as we look out now, as in just about any other decade or century in the course of human history, there just seems to be uncertainty and chaos, all the results of sin. But we know you are in control. You are working things out according to a plan And you're going to bring things to a conclusion that will bring maximum glory to yourself, demonstrating that only when creatures are completely dependent upon you can they have true joy and peace, happiness and stability. Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you are faithful to your word, that no matter how we sin, no matter how we fail, no matter how any bad decisions we make, there is always grace, there's always forgiveness, and that there's no sin too great for, the, for the, your grace, there's no sin that was forgotten at the cross and all was paid for. And Father, we need to be challenged to be in your word so that your word can be in us and that God the Holy Spirit can use it to transform us because the really 
significant reason we are here is not to be successful as students, not to be successful as parents, not to be successful as as, uh, as teachers or in the military. As great as those things are, what counts is what we take with us into eternity. And Father, we pray that you would encourage us to focus more upon your word and to build our relationship with you that we might know you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. This is such a great psalm. And I've had a lot of fun and some not so great fun trying to work my way through some of the issues in this particular psalm. We are now down into a section that focuses on the part of the this prayer where the author is reminding God of what he has promised, of what he has done, and why he has done it, because that will lay the foundation for the basic request that comes at the end of this particular psalm. And so the focal point that begins in verse 19 and goes down to verse 37 is how God raised up David. It gives us some additional information to the giving of the Davidic covenant, the revelation of the Davidic covenant, and different aspects than what we see in either 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 12. So this is a, a very important passage, but we need to be reminded that the focal point is always on God. The focal point is on the uh, faithfulness of God in terms of his loyal, faithful love, the Hebrew word chesed, in conjunction with his faithfulness or stability, his certainty as seen in the word for faithfulness, which is emuna, and how many times each of these two words are used as you move through the text. And that is part of what we'll see again uh, today. Just a reminder, this is a Second Samuel course, a study that we are have been in for uh, uh, many, many lessons, 178 hours so far, and we're co- covering all of the psalms that we can in the context where we know about it. And so we're covering this psalm as part of that study of the Davidic covenant coming out of Second Samuel uh, chapter 7. There's three basic divisions that we have seen here. The first is a focus on God's love, his faithful, loyal love, chesed, and his faithfulness, emuna, and that is praised and described in verses 1 through 18. We've covered that. Now we get into the second section in verses 19 to 37, which reminds God of the promises he made to David, how he raised up David, how he exalted David, how he's empowered and and strengthened David, and that this is going to be the foundation for the petition. The application for us is that when we pray, we should re- we should learn a lot about prayer just by studying the Psalms. But what we see here is by taking God's promises uh, to him and walking our way through them mentally, reminding God and us of what that promise is, then this lays a foundation to a request that we are making as we petition God. We'll then come to the third part, verses 38 to 52, which is the petition of the psalmist that God would remain faithful to his promises to David despite the corruption, the sin, the failure that takes place among David's descendants and that God would not cancel the covenant. Now, that's a reminder, just uh, three steps in the faith rest drill. We first claim a promise. We see promises that relate to us in the church age that are maybe in the Old Testament, relate to Israel, but they reflect a universal uh, principle or promise. And so we claim that by claiming it, it means that we are telling God, this is a promise you've made, and I want you to fulfill that in this particular area. We're not making a demand of God, but we are relating his promises in his word to what is going on in our life and making a request. As we do that, and it's very helpful to memorize passages, memorize scripture, because that forces us to think the passage through, think through the verse. What is the writer saying? What is being said in this verse? 
And we see that there is an internal logic or structure to any verse, any statement, any sentence. And when we do that, we see that there is a logical progression in promises uh, that set up a rationale, an argument for a conclusion. And so we think that through and we apply it in step three, which is where we take those conclusions and then apply that to our particular uh, situation. Now, when we get into Psalm 89, I've gone through the three basic divisions. The first division was verses 1 through 18. Wait a minute, that's a duplicate slide there, so I'm going to skip to this one. God's promise to David is the foundation of the psalmist petition. This is in 89, 19 to 37. Now, there's four sections here that we will work our way through. First, God chose David to be his anointed king. We see that in verses 19 and 20, which serves as an introduction to this section down through verse uh, verse 25. Then secondly, God promised to protect, preserve, and bless David. He will strengthen him. He will establish him. He'll protect him from his enemies. He'll protect him both internally because of the word that David has hidden in his soul that protects him from fear, from anxiety, from worry. And we see so many times in the Psalms how David uh, writes a psalm. He begins in a position of fear, worry, or anxiety. There's a threat. It's overt. But as he focuses on the character of God, it transforms his mental attitude so that he's not worrying, he's not afraid, he's not overwhelmed by circumstances. And this is a problem that every one of us faces at different times in life, sometimes more intense than others. But God has made these same kind of promises to us. And so there's great application there. Then that's verses 21 to 25. Then in 3... The God promises an intimate relationship with him through an eternal covenant. And that will start in verse 26 and go through verse 29. And then the fourth section, God's promises will never be canceled, though there's going to be, they will be hindered by sin and disobedience. And the thing, same thing is true for us, is that God's promises to us will never be canceled, we'll never lose our salvation, we'll never uh, lose the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, we'll never lose uh, the basic package of blessings that we get when we're saved, but there may be a hindrance to realizing them in our own lives simply because of our own bad decisions, our own sins, our own car- carnality. So uh, God's promises are certain, and so that's why we keep going through the emphasis on God's chesed love, it's loyal, faithful to the covenant, and God's emuna is stability, it's rock solid, you can count on it, and that no matter what happens, what the circumstances are, what winds of economic disaster blow or political disaster, military disaster, or meteorological disaster, No matter what happens, relationships, uh, death, loss, jobs, whatever happens, God is still faithful and true to his promises. So in the previous uh, sessions, lessons, we've gone through the first 18 verses. Now we'll start this next section, starting in verse 19. When we look at the outline, this is under the second section, God's promise to David is the foundation of the psalmist's petition. The promises are always based on God's character. God's character was what was developed in verses uh, 1 through 18. And so now we come to the beginning of his section uh, dealing with God raising up David and giving a covenant to David. And in the first two verses of this section, in verses 19 to 20, we see that God reveals his plan to choose David. In verse 19, David's described as a mighty mighty warrior. And it is said that in this passage that he spoke, God spoke in a vision to his holy one. So we have to understand what that's talking about. And then verse 20 we'll see that another uh, anthropomorphism 
where we see God talking as if he is searching for David and he finds David. So this is sets us up in terms of the basic structure and of, of this entire uh, of this entire psalm. So in this verse we read then and that's an important word in ter- in terms of the structure of the uh, of the psalm because it's moving us to a new section, a new topic. Then you spoke in a vision to your holy ones and and said i have given help to one who is mighty i have exalted one chosen from the people now there's various problems with that translation that we will have to address and to talk about uh i spent a lot of time on this i bet i spent five or six hours just trying to work through the first two lines see it's this doesn't come easy sometimes and you can you'd be amazed at how uh, much you have to work on some minor little thing just to make sure you have it uh you you have it right I looked at just you know numerous numerous translations so this first word is a hebrew word which just shifts the focus in the uh, in the te- in the text, transitioning to a new topic, a new focus from the focus on the character and the essence of God. The first problem that we have to face here when we get into this this text is what does it mean when it says you spoke in a vision to your holy one? I've underlined that. That is that is a focus. I want you to look at verse 18, okay, 18 in your uh, New King James Version says, For our shield belongs to Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Now, when he says our king, and several times through here he mentions the king, we don't know exactly which king was there when this was written. It could have been, and I think probably was written during the time of Rehoboam, but we're not sure. We're not. Uh, we're not sure, certain of that. But it doesn't matter because it's talking about the Davidic king. Who it applies to any king of Judah that is a descendant of David. So it's in one sense it's irrelevant who or which king is being talked about. We don't need to know that. We just need to know God is going to be faithful to the Davidic covenant and his promises to David and to his descendants, the, the Davidic line of kings. And in that verse, it's, it states in the second strophe, and our king to the Holy One of Israel. That phrase, Holy One, is not the same in the Hebrew as the lowercase Holy One that we have in the New King James Version. The word for Holy One of Israel in verse 18 is from kadosh, the verb kadosh or the noun kadosh, which relates to God as the unique, one-of-a-kind, distinct God of the universe. He is not like the gods of the peoples. He is not like any idol. He is not like anything that we can imagine. He is the unique creator God of the universe, and he is uniquely righteous and just, and he is also a God of love. Kadosh is not the word that is used here in um, in verse 19. It is a completely different word. It is the word um, uh, chasid, which is uh, has a different sense altogether. So part of the problem as we look at this is we have a textual problem, which which has, in some versions it's singular, in other translations it's plural. So we have to decide first of all is it singular or plural because that's going to affect our our understanding, our interpretation of the text. And then we're going to have to figure out just exactly how it should be translated to understand uh, who is being referred to by this phrase, holy one or faithful ones or pious ones or devout ones, something of that nature. 
but it helps to understand the the first part of this verse that it's referring to a time when a vision when God spoke through a vision and this occurred in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 4 and 5 but it happened that night now if we go back to 2 Samuel David had already talked earlier in the day to Nathan about his plans to build a temple and Nathan thought that was an outstanding idea and encouraged him to do that and then when Nathan went home and went to bed that night. God spoke to him in a vision and said, that's not my plan. So it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? And in the context, God is going to tell David, no, you're not going to build a house, which refers to the temple but I will build a house for you that is a dynasty for you. So that's when this vision historically is indicated in the scripture. So the text says, then you spoke in a vision to your holy one. And this is the Hebrew word chasid, which is related etymologically to the Hebrew noun chesed. Okay, so it's a variant of chesed. The meaning of chesed has to do with God's faithful, loyal love, his covenant love. God is loyal to his promise. He's loyal to his covenant. And so the root meaning for chesed is going to refer to those who are faithful. But we have a textual variant here because there are various translations of this Phrase. Some of them are based on a textual variant that has a plural form here, and others are based on the fact that some of the uh, manuscripts and versions have a singular form there. The Masoretic text has the plural form, and so it would be uh, holy ones or faithful ones or pious ones, And that's what you also find in uh, the Septuagint, in the Syriac version, in the Vulgate, the Latin version, in the Targums, and in some later Greek translations of Aquila and Symmachus. In other words, a large number of manuscripts have a plural there, uh, which is why you'll see in other versions a, a plural. I think the plural is a superior reading just because of the way it is spread across the uh, different ancient manuscripts. When I went to Dallas Seminary, and we were taught textual criticism, the bottom line, this is oversimplification, but the bottom line was, if the Masoretic text thought that was the reading, then you can pretty much go with that. Now, we spent a lot of time studying why that was, but that was their basic view. Over the years, as I've become more educated in other areas, I've become aware, mostly through some of the works of Michael Rydelnik, as well as some others, like an Israeli scholar named Emmanuel Tov, that in many cases the Septuag- the uh, excuse me, the Qumran documents uh, relate to older manuscripts than the Masoretic text. Also, there were some problems that the Masoretes changed some things simply to take away some of the messianic implications. But if and, and so the rule that has been proposed by some is if the if you have the Septuagint and a, any other ancient documents in agreement against the Masoretic text, then they're probably right, and the Masoretic text is wrong. But that doesn't apply here because the Masoretic text has the plural form, the Septuagint has the plural form, Targums have the plural form. Uh, other ancient manuscripts have the plural form, so I think we can say that this is a plural form, and use the use of the singular here, while it reflects what's in a number of different manuscripts, it doesn't reflect the best manuscripts and the best textual criticism. So it should be translated as as whole as as not holy ones, but I think the best translation is probably faithful ones. So now we have to figure out, now that we know what the Hebrew says, we have to figure out what it means. Now, there, there are 
six different translations of this word in commentaries and and translations. The King James, New King James, translates it with a singular, calling it uh, Holy One. Then you have some uh, translations that translate it as um, devout ones, taking chassid as devout. Others translate it as faithful followers. Then you have others that take it as faithful ones. And then you have a little different slant. If it's devout ones, faithful followers, and faithful ones, what that does is it's looking at a group of people and sort of carves out, separates them. Some are faithful, some are not faithful, some are devout, some are not devout, some are pious, some are not pious. Uh, So that would distinguish among the people. Then you have another view that says it's just beloved people talking about all of Israel, that it, this is talking, God is now speaking to the nation. And then there's an, another uh, commentary, actually, that takes it as people committed to you. So he's not talking about the Israelites that aren't committed to you. He's just talking about those that are committed to you. So which one is it going to be? So you have to work through some various issues there. And in terms of interpreta- translation and interpretation, uh, several of these are focusing uh, on uh, the, the recipients as simply God's covenant people, which would be all of Israel. Believer, unbeliever, faithful, unfaithful, devout, uh, not devout. And speaking of them positionally as God's covenant people is the firstborn of God. The second view is that this refers to just a special group within Israel, those who are committed to you, those who are the devout ones, and that is distinguishing the sort of the saved from the unsaved, the righteous from the unrighteous. And the problem with that is that it would just limit God speaking to only believers, only faithful believers, but the reality is that David's covenant was an unconditional covenant, And so the king, the Davidic king, is the king of everybody. Whether they're saved or unsaved, faithful, unfaithful, devout, not devout, it's it's a covenant that relates to the rulership of of the people. And so I think there's some real problems with those views because of their implications. The best view is the one that takes the background for this statement to be 2 Samuel 7, 4, and I think I said 1 Chronicles 17 early, uh, 1 Chronicles 12 earlier. It should be 1 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17, 3, which was, uh, when, which was the vision given to Nathan for David. And so the plural relates to Nathan and David. So that's where you get a plural. You, it's possible that by extension or uh, uh, our implication, it also would include the writer of this psalm, Eitan the Ezraite. So you have lots of different views that come along. You have, for example, uh, Kyle and Dalich take the view that this refers to Samuel and Nathan. Then there's some others who say, no, it refers to Samuel and Nathan and Gad. Then if you really want to get out there, you look at the rabbinical commentaries and they think it refers to Abraham and Moses who aren't mentioned in this passage at all, except by some really strange allegorical interpretation. So uh, the best thing to do with this is to understand that this is referring to that historical event when God revealed the vision to Nathan and then Nathan uh, transmitted that uh, to David. And so the second thing that he says after setting it up that historically God spoke in a vision to these devout ones, these faithful ones. And he said, I have given help to one who is mighty. Now, what is said here isn't revealed in uh, 2 Samuel 7. So this is additional information. God said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. This is um, this is a sort of an idiomatic statement in in the Hebrew, but if we look at the key words, it will help us. When it says, "I have 
given help. It is, I ha- literally, it means I have put help on somebody. That's literal, but it, it's probably idiomatic for I have strengthened. Uh, I have strengthened one or I have assisted one. So I have given help to one who is mighty, and this is an important word. It's Aetzer. And again and again, we find that this word Aetzer is applied mostly to God. God is the one who is always giving help, giving assistance to people all throughout the Scripture. But the first time we find it in the Scripture, it is applied to the woman in the garden that God said about Adam that it is not good for man to be alone. I will provide an aetzer, a helper, an assistant for him. We live in the era when people's thoughts are completely uh, misshapen by the feminist movement, that somehow for a woman to be a helper is said to be demeaning, that it, that, that just uh, runs her down. She's not equal to God, to the man at all, and this just makes her subservient. And that is just a total crock. This is talking about God as an Aetzer. Only God is an Aetzer. This is an extremely honorable word. And it indicates something that only God God does. And it elevates the woman as an Aetzer to a position that is uh, very much very similar to the role that God takes. That is an extremely significant position, and it is demeaned by these radical feminists in their arguments as they seek to completely overturn the whole system of leadership that has been established in the marriage and in the home. And so here we have a an example of its use where God is the one who provides that help. I have given, I have put help on one who is mighty. But let's look at some other passages. In Psalm 70, verse 5, the psalmist is praying to God, and he says, but I am poor and needy. In other words, I'm, I'm helpless. Make haste to me, O God. You are my Aetzer. And my deliverer, you are the one who will save me in, in essence. You're my helper. I can't make it without you. I'm in a, in a bind. I am in need of assistance. I cannot live life on my own. Uh, God, hurry up and intervene. You are my helper. O oh, Lord, do not delay. Then we have it again in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2 where the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Notice this is, this is a situation where you have an individual, a man who is crying out to God because he can't do it on his own. He needs God to come in and intervene. Uh, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is the one who can solve all of our problems and sustain us in any circumstance, no matter what it is, because if he could make the universe and all of the aspects of the universe and the complexity of the universe and the all of the systems that make the uh, earth function and survive and rule all of that, if God can do that, then our big problems are just nothing to God. He can solve everything. So we need to trust in him. God is the one who is the source of our, of our help. But as we look a little deeper into the Psalms, we discover that, that the David, as the king, the recipient of this covenant, recognizes that he is uniquely in need of divine help. In verse In Psalm 20, verse 2, he says, May he send you help from the sanctuary, from his dwelling place, from the Mishkan, the dwelling place of God on the the Temple Mount, and strengthen you out of Zion. Again, in Psalm 118, we have uh, a phrase, You pushed me violently that I might fall, referring to enemies who were attacking but Yahweh helped me. So this relates to uh, 
his the function of God as an Aetzer for David. Now, that's the promise that God is the Aetzer for David in verse 20. I have, str- I have put my help on one who is mighty. And then in verse later on, in Second Chronicles 18.31, we have an example of God helping a Davidic king. In this case, it's Jehoshaphat, a descendant of David and king of Judah. So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, it's the king of Israel. Therefore, they surrounded him to attack. So he's really in a tight place, surrounded, and they want to kill him. But Jehoshaphat did what we ought to do, and he cried out, and Yahweh helped him, and God diverted them from him. And then a little later on, Amaziah, another Davidic king and king over Judah, uh, is warned by God because he wants to go his own way into a battle with an evil alliance, and he's warned, if you go, be, be gone. Here we go, Second Chronicles 25.8. But if you go, go, be gone, be strong in battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemy. You may be mighty in your own strength and power, but if you're doing it in a rebellion against God's command, God will defeat you and make you fall before the enemy. For God has power to help, Aetzer, to help and to overthrow. And so again and again, we see God is the one who helped. Amaziah listened to the warning from the prophet here, and he backed off of the battle and... God sustained him and protected him and strengthened him. So we see that this this statement of God that I have put help on one who is mighty applied not just to David, but because of the Davidic covenant, it applied to all of David's uh, descendants who were kings of Israel who were walking in obedience uh, to the Lord. So we have the first statement, I have put help on one who is mighty, and the word for mighty is the Hebrew word gabor. And the word gabor refers to a mighty man. Now today in modern Hebrew, it's interesting, it refers to basically a man. So if you go out to eat at a restaurant and you go back to go to the restroom, you will find that one of the rooms is, is identified for gibberim. It's not talking about mighty warriors, it's talking about males. So uh, things that... Uh, language has changed a little bit, but this is talking about one who is mighty or a mighty one or mighty man. The Hebrew root here for Gabor is commonly associated in Hebrew text with a warrior, somebody who is going to battle, and it emphasizes the strength and the vitality of a successful warrior. So David has abilities on his own to be a warrior, but it is God who gives him the victory, God who sustains him, God who helps him. And so God uses our natural abilities, but we are not to use our natural abilities apart from dependence upon God. And so then in the next phrase, I should have underlined chosen, Uh, We have a word that's become familiar to us, and this is the word bachor, and it is the word that in as a uh, as a verb in one of the main stems it would have the idea of a choice, but here it is a participle, and it's used as a noun or an adjective, an adjectival usage, and God raises up, lifts up uh, one a choice one. From the people. That would be the best way to translate this that God raises up a choice one or an excellent one. And this is how this word is used as a participle, as uh, in an adjectival sense. And I want to give you some examples of this because this is a background for understanding that word election. In Judges 20, verse 16, this is a terrible incident at the end of the period of the Judges when all of the tribes are gathered against Benjamin and uh, the Benjamites have been quite perverse and they go to war. 
And in Judges 20, verse 16, we read, And among all the people were 700, and the word there is bachor, select men or choice men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now, when this word is applied to election, God is focusing on choice people, not because of their good works, not because of inherent righteousness or talents or abilities, but because they possess the righteousness of Christ. And we go back to that parable in Matthew chapter 20 uh, with the wedding feast and that you have one shows up and he doesn't have on the right clothes. And uh, it's the parable starts off that God sent out an invitation to everybody, which is focusing on the Jews, and invites them to the wedding. So that's the call. But they say, no, we're not coming. We don't want to be involved. So then the uh, father of the groom decides to uh, go to all the people, uh, which would be the Gentiles, and issue the invitation, and they respond but at the end, it says, many are called, but few are chosen. The only choosing that takes place in the parable is the choosing of the second crowd to respond to the invitation. There's no choice on the part of the, of the king who is extending the invitation. And so it's not talking about many are called and few are chosen, but many are called or invited but few are choice, few are excellent. What makes them excellent is that they have the right robes on, the right dress on when they are at the wedding feast, the wedding banquet. And the one who is cast out is cast out because he doesn't have on the right clothes, i.e. the righteousness of Christ. So that's the emphasis here. They, they are not selected by putting on a blindfold ignoring your knowledge and information about their qualifications and going eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and just randomly selecting some to be part of this elite core of, of, uh, of, of uh, slingers. They were choice men. They were qualified to do it. Every one of them could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. I don't know if you've ever tried to use a sling of this type and try to hit something, uh, I bet not one of us here could hit the back wall if you stood up here in the pulpit. And if you did, you probably wouldn't come within a foot of whatever your target is. It's extremely difficult, but they can't miss at a hair's breadth. I don't know if you could do that with a forty-five from up here. And you've got sights and could stabilize on a pulpit. So... This is a remarkable feat. They had to pass a qualification test to be part of this 700. Then in Judges 20:34, and 10,000 choice men from all Israel came up against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. So they have to face a, an elite uh, army coming against them. In 1 Samuel 24.2, we're told that David took 3,000 choice men. He did just didn't go out and say, okay, you three companies, you come with me. He qualified them first, and he took the choice men and made an elite force of, of uh, special forces, special ops to go on this particular mission to find David. And in 2 Samuel 6, 1, David did the same thing. He gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. He got the best of the best and put them in the field. So this is uh, important to understand uh, what is going on here. David knew as a result of all of this that God was his real strength. God was his Atzer. And in Psalm 33, verse 16 through 18, he says, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Now, you can put whatever qualifications you can think of in there. Uh, nobody is saved by a great education. And, and no uh, mighty politician is delivered by uh, his majority. You can't rely on anything in the created world 
God promotes those who are prepared, and it's up to God who he will promote and who he won't. Psalm thirty-three, seventeen: a horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. And yet we often think that if we've got the best technology, we can win the war. But best technology doesn't do it. You've got to have God on your side. And I think that's what happened in World War II. When you read something like Rick, Rick Atkinson's uh, Liberation uh, Trilogy on the American involvement in World War II, the number of logistic nightmares and catastrophes that plagued the American troops from uh, the time they went into North Africa until past D-Day to the end of the war. Just phenomenal how many errors were made, and yet God overrode all that human error and gave us the victory. So God is the one in whom we have to trust. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. Now, I want you to notice that the eye of the Lord, this is talking about God's knowledge, God's omniscience, and he is aware of who fears him, and that is who God is protecting, those who hope in his mercy. That's what it means uh, to, um, to fear God, is to trust in him and to have confidence in his, in his mercy. So that brings us to verse 20. And in verse 20, we're seeing that God was searching. It's an anthropopathism. God is omniscient. He's always known that he was going to elevate David to the kingship. He always knew David was the one who was going to get the Davidic covenant. There never was a time when he didn't do it. Uh, Human decisions do not cause God to do something different because God and his omniscient always knew. But God doesn't determine uh, human volition. So we see a wonderful passage here uh, describing God as searching for someone to be the king. And then he says in verse 20, I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I anointed him. That's my translation. Now, the word for I have found is the Hebrew word matzah, which means to uh, find, to discover, uh, and it's usually paired about 35 times in the Hebrew text with the word to seek. You seek and you will find. And so in this passage, we don't have seeking. We have just the second half, I have found. But it is language that is reminiscent of a couple of other passages in Scripture that help us to understand uh, how this is working. For example... In Second Chronicles 16.9, we're told, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars, because Israel has been disobedient. So when we look at this verse, first phrase we have is one we've seen already. The phrase, eyes of the Lord, is just a term for his God's omniscience, that he knows what is going on everywhere. He knows the inner thoughts of every single human being. He knows your inner thoughts and my inner thoughts. He knows the inner thoughts that you don't want anybody to know. And he knows them as clear as anything. And his eyes are running to and fro throughout the earth. Now, God doesn't actually have to go knocking on every door and turning over every rock to find somebody because he's omniscient. He knows everything. But this is just dramatic imagery in order to communicate the omniscience of God. It runs to and fro throughout the whole earth. because, And it's emphasizing God's mercy. He wants to show himself strong. God wants to show himself strong in our lives much more than we want him to show himself strong in our lives. But he's looking for something. He's looking for an inner attitude of trust and faithfulness. And so that's why it says he wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And the Hebrew word for loyal there uh, is the word shalom those who have a peace with God, those who have a whole relationship with God, those who are at peace with him 
And so he's looking for those who ha- whose heart is peaceful with him. Now, the second thing we ought to note is that this word heart is a word that refers to the intellect. So many people think it's pure subjectivity and emotion. The, oh, my heart hurt. Well, you're just having an emotional breakdown, but get over yourself and use the word heart correctly. Heart refers primarily to intellect. It's not talking about emotions. Up until about 200 years ago, we didn't have the word emotion. Now, I could spend a whole lot of time on this, and eventually I will, talking about understanding of emotion, but that word did not enter into the English language until about 200 years ago. So how did we talk about it? Did you know that there's no word for emotion in Hebrew? There's no word for emotion in Greek. They didn't have that kind of vocabulary. The word emotion entered into uh, the English language in the late 1700s, and it wasn't long before it got co-opted by the whole psychological uh, movement. And what they talked about prior to that were two categories. You can go back to the ancient Greeks even in talking, breaking down uh, these things into these two categories. On the one hand, you had the positives, and they were the intellectual affections. And by the word affection, it doesn't mean emotion. By the word affection, it emphasizes that the intellect is volitionally attaching itself to an object. So on the one hand, you have intellectual affections in contrast to bodily passions, anger, love or lust, resentment, bitterness, all these things are bodily passions and they flow from the sin nature. And this this was the way that people talked about this until the late 1700s and then you had the development of the term uh, emotion. There's a book called From Passions to Emotion by Thomas Dixon who traces the history of this term and the emphasis in affections, intellectual affections, was on the inclination of the will to an object. And God, in this sense, has intellectual affections. And this is what the term heart would refer to, is those intellectual affections. So God is looking for someone who is volitionally focused on him. It is an intellectual attraction that's driven by emotion. I mean, it's driven by volition. So God is saying that he is looking for those who are positive to him, volitionally directed toward him, and and are loyal to him. And so uh, that is the focus. So God is looking for those. He is seeking, and then he will find. And he is seeking to find the right kind of man to lead his people Israel. And that's what we find in 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen, when Samuel is lowering the boom on Saul because of Saul's disobedience. And he says there, but now your kingdom, talking to Saul, your kingdom will not continue. This is another example of how God knows uh, the what could happen, what might have happened. You know, there are people out there who don't want to understand this. There are people out there who think that God only knows what will happen because God determines what will happen. That's why he knows it. Uh, but the scriptures are very clear that God knows what might happen, what could have happened, what would have happened, what should have happened. And you have passages where he is talking to condemning uh, Capernaum and Bethsaida for rejecting the significance of Jesus' miracles. And he says, if what was done in you was done in Sodom and Gomorrah, then Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He knows what would happen under different circumstances if different decisions were made. And so God says here that your kingdom will not continue because Saul had every opportunity to be obedient to God and to be faithful to God, but he was disobedient, and so the kingdom was taken from him. And so what is God looking for in a leader? The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. 
That's the language there. It's not talking about some man who's in touch with his uh, inner feminine side and his emotions. It's talking about a man who is volitionally driven to know God and to have a, a deep walk with the Lord. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is in 1 Samuel 13. It's not till 1 Samuel 16 that Saul, that, that, excuse me, that David is anointed. Stephen quotes from this, or excuse me, Paul quotes from this in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And when he's talking about David, he says, when he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, quote, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, who will do all my will. Now, this doesn't mean that David was perfect or David was sinless. What this means is David was a, a horrible sinner, just as horrible a sinner as you are, and just as horrible a sinner as I am. And yet, when all was said and done, David did not break the first three commandments. He did not succumb to idolatry. He did not succumb to evil. Now, you have to understand how the Old Testament uses the word evil. When you get into the uh, all of the activities of the kings of the north, at the end of their reigns, it says that so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. Well, what was Jeroboam's sin? He set up idolatrous temples in the north when he led a revolt against the northern against the southern kingdom, split off the ten northern tribes on their own. He rejected God. He set up a temple in the south in Bethel and in the north in Dan, and he uh, set up a golden calf in each one and said, "This is the God who took you out of Egypt." It was pure idolatry. Idolatry is evil. Evil is when you're putting your hope and your trust in something in the creation, something other than God, to provide stability and to provide strength for you and happiness and joy in this life. And David never did that. David got involved in a lot of sin. And you and I can get involved in a lot of sin. But what we have to determine with people is are they sinning or have they succumbed to evil? And there are a lot of Christians that succumb to evil because they reject the, the, the authority of God in their life. They turn their back on God and they start living just for themselves and they're no longer living for God. They're no longer a person who is after God's heart. And God shows such tremendous grace to David that towards the end of his life as we've studied, God gave him this covenant even though David had sinned so much. And what we find uh, 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 Stephen say, excuse me, Saul saying in Acts 13, I mean Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus saying, uh, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So God is gracious to David in giving him uh, this covenant. And so we are reminded of how Psalm 89 began. It began with, I have made a covenant with my choice one, I have sworn to my servant David. Now, that is an extremely significant statement referring to David as his servant. The servant of God in Isaiah is the Messiah. There's a definite allusion here to the messianic implications of that, uh, of that covenant, that it is through that covenant that God was going to provide the Messiah. So Psalm 89.3 introduces that back at the beginning of the psalm. And then we get into the uh, next section, and the next section begins in verse, uh, verse 21, where God promises to protect, preserve, and to bless David. I think I'm going to stop here because I like taking these sections together rather than breaking up these verses when we break up these uh, in individual sections because they all... Uh, work together. So verses 21 through 25 are a unit, and I would prefer to cover all of that uh, next time in one 
uh, one unit and maybe even getting into the next one, but there's not quite as much to deal with in the next unit as there was uh, at the beginning uh, of this section. So we'll just uh, uh, stop here. The reminder is that God is gracious. God is looking for someone. He is seeking those whose heart is focused on him. And the question for us is, is that true about us? Are we focused on God? God is more concerned about our relationship with him, that we know him. This is in, I think, Jeremiah 9. Um, God uh, is, it goes something like this, that God said, let not the wise boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty boast in his power, but let him boast in this, that he knows me. And that's the priority, is that we know God. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, your loyalty, and that you're seeking those who desire to know you, who put their their hope, their trust, their faith in you, who are loyal to you, who will trust you above all things, and then you will uh, work magnificently in their lives. And, Father, we pray that this would be true of every single one of us. We all fail. We all sin. We all know how much we do that. But nevertheless, you praise David as a man after your heart because at bottom line, he was loyal to you despite failures just as we desire to be loyal to you despite our sins and our failures. We pray that you would challenge us with this and we would be strengthened spiritually. In Christ's name, amen.